Now if the ministry that brought death, chiseled in letters on stones, came with glory, so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted, because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Well, good morning. Good morning. I feel like we have been standing and are sitting, and this is just like the most serious service I've been in forever. So let's all stand up for a second and take a breath, and let's pray together, please, as we stand up. Uh, our bottom's moving a little bit. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are in your presence right now. We invite your presence to take over this place, that we might walk in your presence this week more closely than we did last week and know the freedom that comes in that, the glory that is in that. Through Christ we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. I wonder if you recognize what these companies have in common. Uh, Joanne Fabrics, Sears, Bed Bath and Beyond, Brooks Brothers, Rite Aid Drugs. You may recognize that those are all companies that are either closing stores or literally going out of business. They joined the ranks of other successful, once successful brands like AOL and Kodak and anybody old enough to remember Errol's? E-R-O-L-S. Yeah, okay, we got some old people among us this morning. Then it became Blockbusters. Toys R Us, the Cleveland Browns. You say, Brett, the Cleveland Browns aren't going out of business. They should be. I say that as one who sympathizes. You know, it is a bad thing when you're saying, we had a great decade in the 60s, didn't we? Kind of a sad thing when you look at life and wonder if your best days are behind you. In fact, surveys, research done of younger people today, younger generations, say they look at the future and think their future is probably not as bright 
as their parents and grandparents was. And the reality is that's the nature of life. The nature of life really is for everything to go downhill. You know, I heard that old age is when almost everything hurts, and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. Old age is when you finally know everything and you start to forget everything you once knew. That cuts a little bit too close. You know who really fears that the best days are behind them? Successful people. If you've been successful, especially when you're young, how do you live up to that again? Are your glory days behind? Can you imagine being 14 years old and winning an Olympic gold medal? How do you top that? Being a child star when you're 10 years old and for the next 60 years, you're kind of living off your first 10? Kind of haunting to wonder, are my glory days behind? Are the best days of my career, the best days of my life, the best days of my family, the best days of my joy behind? That's why we need the encouragement that comes, I think, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Where the Apostle Paul tells us, in Christ, the best days are always yet to come. Let's bottom line it with the last verse we're going to take a look at today. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in that same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul says when you're in Christ, you know His glory, and it's glory to glory. From glory to glory to glory, one state of glory to another, until you're with Him in glory. The best is always yet to come. Now, this promise is not for everybody. This promise is only for people who follow Jesus Christ. For people who live for this world, they're condemned to the experience of this world, which is everything runs downhill, things wear out, thrills grow old, glory fades. But Jesus promises, I've come that you might have life and might have it in abundance, from faith to faith, from glory to glory. So how do we experience this increasing glory? Well, it begins by understanding that increasing glory is found only in relationship with Jesus. Let's read our first verses in this passage, beginning with verse 7. The Apostle Paul says, If this ministry that brought death, chiseled in letters on stone, came in glory, he's talking about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation, the Old Testament, is, had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, if it had been glorious, it is not, is, uh, it, what had been glorious is, now, is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. Now, some of you are saying, that's a whole lot of glory. In fact, there are 10 times in, this, in those verses alone that the Apostle Paul uses the word glory. But there are, only over, there are 619 times in the Bible that the word glory is used. So we need to take a second here to understand terms. You know, it's kind of like if you go to Starbucks. It's not enough just to say large coffee black, not enough panache. You kind of have to learn a new nomenclature. So if you're going to know God, if you're going to know Jesus, if you're going to know the Bible, you need to understand its terms. And one of those terms that you cannot understand God until you understand is this word glory. 
that is used so often in Scripture. And it's one of those terms that's hard to understand because it's used in so many different ways. When you think of glory, what comes to mind? Maybe say, heaven. Oh, that will be glory for me. Okay. Maybe you think of brightness. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. The brightness of God. The cloud of God's presence. Maybe you think of praise. We sing glory to God. You, we used to sing the doxology. In Greek, the word for glory is doxa. A doxology, logos, doxa, logos, a word of praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. So when we praise, we're singing glory to God. Jesus called the cross glory. One commentator observed, glory has a depth of meaning that cannot be expressed in a simple translation. Certainly there is a basic sense of honor here and repute, even beauty and splendor, but glory means so much more. It's encompassing the entire character and nature of God. It carries with it the idea of weight, substance, weightiness. So if you remember, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Weight of Glory, which is a play on words because people think it, it kind of reads like the weight, I'm waiting for glory. No, it's W-E-I-G-H-T, the substance, the heaviness, the realness, the richness of God's character and beauty. And the Apostle Paul begins here by saying the Old Testament had glory, the New Testament has greater glory. He wants us to understand that in verse 10. In fact, what had been glorious, Old Testament, is not now glorious by comparison because of the glory that surpassed it. For what was set aside was glorious, Old Testament, but what has endured is even more glorious. How is the New Testament, the New Covenant, more glorious than the Old Covenant? The first thing I want you to understand, though, the Old Testament is glorious. Some people have the mistaken notion that the Old Testament law is bad. Some people you'll hear, even Christian people, or at least they call themselves Christian, will say, oh, I don't listen, to, I don't pay attention to the Old Testament, I just listen to the words of Jesus as though Jesus didn't write the Old Testament. The Old Testament is glorious because it conveys the character of God. The Apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, is the law sin? Absolutely not. I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. The Old Testament is, law is good because it reveals God's holiness, his character, what he defines as right and wrong, what he defines as loving and not loving. And isn't it good that we have that? How confused morally people are today, how much more confused we would be without it. We wouldn't know what holiness says unless we read the Old Testament. How do you know what's good sexually, what's holy and right, what's wrong sexually, except it's characterized in the Old Testament? People are still confused about it. Why? Because they throw away the Old Testament standards. How would you know what justice is? Is justice just a matter of results or is justice God's right processes too? You know, there are a lot of people today that think, oh, they don't care about the, the righteousness of the process. They just care about getting the result that they want. We call that prejudice. But many people today call that justice. The law is good because it shows us, it displays God's character, but it is limited. 
The law is good because it tells us the problem. It's limited because it doesn't give us the cure. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, there's no one who's made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. The law is good because it shows us what is right and wrong, but nobody's ever saved by the law because to be saved by the law, you have to obey it perfectly. You break it at just one place, you've broken it all. So it tells us the problem. It's kind of like going to the doctor and have the doctor say, hey, we figured out your problem. You have cancer, but there's no cure. Well, I guess it's nice to know the diagnosis, but what I really need is a cure. So Paul says in verse 11 here, if what was set aside was glorious, what endures is even more glorious. The great news is, while the Old Testament brings condemnation, the new covenant brings grace. The solution, salvation, from glory to glory, from faith to faith. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 says, since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. Once you learn that you, there's a cure for your cancer, it changes your life. You want to tell everybody about it, certainly people who have the same cancer. And once we know the cure for our sin has been given to us by Jesus Christ in the New Testament, the New Covenant, we have a hope. We want everybody to know. Second reason why the Old Testament has greater glory than the first is because the Old Testament was glory. The New Testament has greater glory is because the Old Testament was external. The New Testament focuses on the internal. Notice what Paul writes in verse 7 where he says, the ministry that brought death was chiseled in letters on stone. External. But verse 8 says that the that the ministry of the New Testament is the ministry of the Spirit, internal. The new covenant of Jesus is written on the human heart. The Old Testament law was written on stone. Verse 6, B, we didn't read this, but if you look back at verse 6, it says, where this, but the, the, the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. The Old Testament tells us the problem. The New Testament gives us the solution. If we're going to change, how do we change? Just by changing behavior, just by the surface changes? No, we've got to change from the inside out. Go to a counselor. How does a counselor try to change you? Just by focusing on how do we change your behavior? No, the counselor is going to go and say, now help, let's understand your motivations. Let's see the hurts that you're carrying. Let's talk about your past. Let's see those things that are driving you as blind spots that you need to become aware of so that, that you're changed from the inside out. That's why Paul uses Moses here and his experience with glory as an illustration. When Moses received the commandments from God on Mount Sinai, he was there for 40 days. And when he comes down, his face is radiating the glory of God. You know, kind of like if you're out in the sun for two weeks straight, your skin is going to reflect, it's going to show the difference. Except he's been in the presence of God for 40 days. And he comes down... And it says in verse 7, the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory. Now, when you read the Old Testament, it seems that Moses put a veil on because the people couldn't stand to look at the glory because it was so glorious. But the implication here is there was another reason. Verse 12 tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, Moses had to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. 
the implication there is Moses wore a veil because he didn't want to see the pe- he wouldn't want people people say the glory was fading. Who wants to follow a leader whose glory days are behind? Whose glory is decreasing? Paul says, by contrast with Moses' fading glory, our glory in Christ never fades. In fact, it increases because it's an internal glory. Verse 13, we are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face. And then you get to verse 18, because we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror, seeing the glory of the Lord. We see Jesus in the mirror in Scripture in prayer, in each other. And we're being transformed to that same image from glory to glory, from one state of character to another, from one experience of his presence to another. And this is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Old Testament is glorious, but it's external and fading. The New Testament is in the Spirit. It is glorious because it is internal and it's always increasing. The best is always yet to come in Christ. That is why I want to assure you, those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 2, it says when we're baptized into Christ, and if you've not been baptized into Christ, listen to this. Paul, Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us for sure that when you're baptized in Christ, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He takes up residence in you. He transforms you from the inside out, from glory to glory. There's nothing much more enjoyable than watching godly people age. I I watched my grandfather grow older and become more peaceful. I've watched my dad. The older he gets, the more evangelistic he's become, the more bold he's sharing Jesus. The older my mom grows, the more forgiving she's become. It's from glory to glory. Isn't that wonderful? So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. This is why at New Life we value next steps. If you're in Christ, there's always a next step of glory. What's your next step? By the way, are you living the external religious life where it's all about actions alone or are you letting the Holy Spirit transform you from moment to moment, day to day, so you're more loving today than you were yesterday, you're more patient today than you were last week, you are more focused on God's purposes for your life, you're taking more risks for God this year than last year because it's glory to glory. Now the question is, if following Jesus means the best is yet to come, Why doesn't everybody just follow Jesus? The answer, hard-heartedness, closed-mindedness. Verse 13, we are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily, but their minds were hardened. Boy, we hate to say that, but think about what that means. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The people of Israel just kept rejecting God in the Old Testament. I mean, Moses isn't off the mountain before. They're already worshiping a golden calf. And God says, 
later on, take the promised land. I give it to you. And they say, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. There's, there's giants in the land. That's too scary. They didn't listen and obey. They were closed-minded. Verse 15 says, yet still today when Moses is read, there's a veil over their hearts. They may have IQs that are high, degrees that are impressive, but if people don't know Jesus, they're fools because their minds are closed. New Yorker magazine ran an article, Why Smart People Are Stupid. Why philosophers, intellectuals, professors, economists, so-called experts make irrational errors. Pythagoras, for instance. Remember the Pythagorean theorem? No, let's forget the Pythagorean theorem. No, remember, he, he one time said, he was a really smart guy, and he believed nobody should eat beans. Beans off, you know, off everybody's diet. Now, maybe he spent too much time in men's locker rooms. I don't know, but really? Tesla. We've heard Tesla these years, haven't we? Tesla said, by the year 2100, we will see eugenics universally established. Hitler would have liked that. Why do smart people say stupid things? I heard about an experienced fireman who instructed a rookie fireman, if you want to acclimate your, young, your lungs to to smoke inhalation when you're in a burning building, start smoking cigarettes now. Really? You know, in the 1960s, they said there was an ice age that will devastate the planet by 2000. In 1971, they said, no, no, the, the ice age will devastate the entire planet by 2020. Why can smart people be so stupid? Research conducted by James Madison University and the University of Toronto suggests, quote, in many instances, the smarter people are, the more vulnerable they are to these thinking errors because of bias, because of pride, because of wrong assumptions. An old preacher called people like this pseudo-psycho-ceramics, sophisticated crackpots, in other words. 1 Corinthians 3.19 says, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Go to a lot of smart people and they will give you a lot of foolish advice if they are not followers of Jesus Christ. Got troubles with your finances? Even if you don't have troubles with your finances, you go to some non-Christian financial counselor, they'll say, don't put the church first in your finances. You, you make that the last thing if you do it at all. And if you have trouble with your finances, you cut out your generosity to the church. Don't pursue God's will with your career, young people. Make sure you go to the college that's prestigious. Not happy in your marriage? Well, you deserve to be happy. If marriage doesn't make you happy, why be married? If you're not sexually fulfilled, use porn. God's Word says the primary purpose of marriage is not happiness, it is holiness, however. Kids today are told if you're uncomfortable with your body, don't change your thinking, change your body. Walt Heyer recently has announced that he was lied to by the media and doctors. They told him that the answer to his gender confusion was to transition. He says, we are manufacturing transgender kids. 
We are misreading their depression, their anxiety, and we turn them into a huge industry that people are profiting from after kids' lives are completely torn apart. One woman named Elaine, who at one point tried to transition, said parents are doing everything that they can to help their kids lead healthy, happy, fulfilling lives. And these parents are being lied to as their children are harmed. Why not help children learn to love their bodies in which they were born, she asked. The Apostle Paul would say, there's a veil over their eyes. Their hearts are hard. And if I can just say to you, I sure hope you don't let the world put a veil over your eyes, no matter how much pressure there is. On the other hand, when people know Jesus, he takes off the veil. He makes things clear. I love the story of the man who went to his boss. The boss called him into the office and he said, I hear that you are ignoring all of our new safety standard procedures. He said, yep, I have worked in this company a long time. We didn't have those safety, those safety procedures. They are not only unnecessary, I've never had a safety problem, but they're slowing down my productivity and I'm not gonna do these unnecessary things if they make me less productive. The boss says, that's fine. Here's your pink slip. Here's your final check. Hand in your keys. You're done. The man said, I think I'd like to follow those new safety procedures now. The boss said, what changed? The man said, no one ever explained it to me quite that clearly before. When you come to Jesus, he takes the veil off your eyes and you see this world and yourself clearly. You read the book of Genesis and you realize, I'm not here by mistake. I am made in the image of God. My identity is given to me by God himself. You read the Old Testament, you see that God is holy and I am not and sin is serious. You read the Old Testament and you see nations that ignored God, not just the people of Israel, any nation that ignored God, read Ezekiel, read Amos, read the, 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 the prophets, they all went down in flames because only righteousness exalts a nation. We realize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I want to go Jesus' way. I want to know Jesus' truth. I want to have Jesus' life. And you discover that you find rest for your souls but notice the first step is an act of the will. Verse 16. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The first step is to turn to Jesus and away from the Lord. Turn away from popular culture and turn to biblical truth. Away from worldly priorities and to godly priorities. Away from temporal goals, toward eternal ambitions. Go make disciples. Away from security in treasures on earth toward I lay up treasures in heaven that cannot be destroyed or taken away. But it begins with a character decision. Whoever turns to the Lord the Bible word for that is repentance. I'm sinful, I need a savior. Jesus, not my way, but your way. 
Let me ask, what do you need to turn away from today so you can see more clearly Jesus? What does it mean for you if, if you really let Jesus take away the veil? How would you see a difference because you've turned to him and away from the world? 1 Corinthians 2, 16 teaches, says that God teaches us not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. By the way, if you're primarily consuming un, things from unspiritual people, if that's what you feed on, then don't be surprised if your heart's hardened. Turn to Jesus. Now, for followers of Jesus, the best is always yet to come because the more Jesus transforms us, the more freedom we enjoy. Verse 18, verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord who is the Spirit. The more we reflect Jesus in our lives, the more freedom we will enjoy and we'll become more free the older we are. The best is always yet to be. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Do you believe it? Jesus said, whoever sins becomes a slave of sin, but if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you really believe that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and where the Spirit of the Lord is not, there's tyranny? Do you really believe that? Do you know how it would change? Do you, do you think it would change you at all if you really believe that completely? If you really believe that only in Jesus is freedom, how would that affect your actions, your attitudes, the way you see other people? Dare I say, it would transform your political views. This is not a political truth. It is a universal, absolute truth. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And if you want to have a free nation, you got to believe that the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. But we've been so gaslighted by people who don't believe that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom that people are afraid now to believe that honoring Christ brings freedom. Jesus would make it the point, though, there is no such thing as absolute truth. I'm sorry, there's no thing of absolute freedom. There's, there is absolute truth. There's no thing that is absolute freedom. There's just the choice to choose your master. He makes this point brilliantly in Matthew chapter 6. Remember Matthew chapter 6? Toward the end of the chapter, Jesus talks about anxiety. We love this. Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't worry about what you eat or what you drink and what you wear because your heavenly Father cares about you. And he takes care of the birds. He takes care of the lilies of the field. Will he not take care of you, O oh, you little faith? Therefore, and how does he conclude it in verse 33? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Turn to Jesus, seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you as well. Do you remember the context of this? Do you remember what Jesus was teaching just before this? He was teaching about masters and freedom in the context of money. Remember he says in verse 24, nobody can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and 
money. Jesus says, you can't serve both God and anything else. Notice he's not making a moral judgment. He is making a statement of reality truth. He doesn't say you shouldn't try. You shouldn't serve two masters. He says you cannot. As human beings, we are constitutionally incapable of serving more than one master. That is why people who have thought this through have said there really is no freedom in life. The only freedom we have is one choice. What master will we serve? From that point on, the master we serve will determine the freedom that we have. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that's why Jesus says, so don't worry. Why? Because you have a master who gives you freedom. You have a master who takes care of you. In contrast, he says, it's the pagans who are anxious about what they eat and drink and wear. Why? Because they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. So the answer to the anxiety problem begins with who's your master? And if money is your master, if money is before God, you're going to be anxious. See, the decisions, the freedom that we enjoy is completely determined by the master that we follow. Edmund Burke, one of my favorite quotes from um, the Revolutionary War, he was a British parliamentarian. Edmund Burke said, it is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. You and I cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. It's true. The question is, who owns your passions? Does God own your passions? Is your passion for God or is your passion for self? Is your passion for God or is your passion for this world's? Now, if you're really smart, you will follow up the question by saying, who is really interested in my freedom? Satan or Jesus? M money or Jesus? And if you're really smart, you'll ask the question, who is actually able to give me freedom? Not just promise freedom, but actually deliver freedom. And the answer, of course, is clear. If the Son sets you free, Jesus says you'll be free indeed. It is so true. Have you lived long enough to know? When I was an associate minister, um, I met one time for breakfast with a man who was in the Air Force, and his job in the Pentagon was to travel with congressmen, congress people and senators on their junkets overseas. He said, Brett, for guys like me that are traveling with them, it's just opportunity for sexual circuses. He said, I've never had a homosexual experience, but, but he says, I have, there is not a sexual experience I have not experienced. And he did not say it with pride. He said it with tears. He was broken because it was ruining his marriage. It was ruining his relationship with his kids. It was ruining his soul. It hindered his prayers. It weakened his confidence. He was a broken man who was a slave to sin. By contrast, I remember um, there was a time that there was a man, a, a minister that we had to confront. It was 
we discovered that he was involved in a number of sexual activities with some years history of it. So we went and talked to him and drove him home where he confessed to his wife. It was awful. It was a horrible day. Um, but he confessed and he repented and his wife was amazingly strong. And they fought it through together. They went to, counsel- they went to a ton of counseling. And they worked hard and they changed. I remember reading them a couple of years later. And I was saying to them, saying to them, I'm so proud of you. What you have done takes so much humility and courage and work and surrender. I'm so proud of you. And you know what he said to me? I'll never forget. He said, Brett, it is just so good to be free. Satan promises freedom but delivers captivity. And he's a good liar. And he has some really good marketers. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom that endures and grows. Don't you know, Paul says, that those who offer themselves to somebody as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either leading to death or to obedience leading to righteousness. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Verse 12 says, Since then we have such a hope of increasing freedom in Christ, we act with great boldness. So the question I have for you today is, because Christ has set you free, if he is your master, what does it mean for you to act in boldness? What's your next step from glory to glory? David Borden was the heir to the Borden Milk Company. Graduated from Yale with honors, stood to inherit all the wealth and, and, um, and, 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 and power and everything of the Borden Empire. But one day, he opened the door of his life to Jesus and was transformed and listened to the call of Christ to become a missionary to Muslims. People who knew his situation thought he was nuts, but he went to school, he did the study, moved to Egypt where he could reach a Muslim population, but he wasn't there long before he contracted an illness and died. And again, people said, what a waste. What a life he could have had if he had just stayed in the United States and followed the path that life had given him. David Borden didn't think it was a waste. In the flyleaf of his Bible, he wrote these words, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. David Borden died with increasing glory, and he heard God say, well done, good and faithful servant, because he lived for Jesus' glory. Since then, we have such hope. We act with great boldness. What about you? Somebody once observed, Jesus has come to set you free, but your prison door is locked from the inside. He has come and done everything possible to set you free, and he will set you free, but you have to unlock the door and open, up, open it to him. And if you do, that will mean saying every day, no reserve, no retreat, no regret, 
and you will find freedom in Christ and you will live boldly and no matter what life throws at you, you will always know the best is yet to come because it's glory to glory in Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that we can know salvation and not be dead in our trespasses and sins and regrets and past. And I thank you that our hope is not in our own abilities, but in your sufficiency, your power, that it's just letting you get closer to us, that you take us from glory to glory, from freedom to freedom. Lord, with unveiled face, we would behold you today and ask that you would transform us one more step of glory into your image, that the world would see your glory through us. Through Christ we pray. Amen.